You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're glad to be back in the studio after a little bit of a break. Uh, yeah, got a few weeks off. Yeah, had some crazy weather. <laughs> um, snow. <laughs> yeah, not to put too much of a timestamp on the podcast, but we got snow in Oklahoma. Like a, significant a snow. Lot. Uh, yeah, we, we almost never get any snow in this last month. Wait, we just got got it, over a foot here in Norman. And record cold temperatures. It was yeah, ridiculous. It, it was insane. So fortunately... Um, our house made it through with no damage, um, no serious damage. We but... had one little freeze, but we're in a camper, so, you know, that happens. Yeah. I mean, it, it could have been a lot worse. I know um, the the plumbers that I talked to, um, we had some up at work. We had some damage up there, and they were saying that they can't even wear their shirts into the hardware <laughs> store because people just start asking them questions. I don't doubt it. It was nuts because we never see that kind of extreme cold and our houses just weren't built for it. So no, not dear in Oklahoma. <laughs> Canadian friends, keep your weather in Canada because yeah. that's where it belongs. Keep, keep that stuff off my lawn. <laughs> I will try to keep the warm weather here <laughs> as much as possible because yeah, if I, in a perfect world, I would move to where it was always summer. I mean, that mm-hmm. would just be my thing, but I have a husband who prefers the cold because he's weird. So <laughs> yeah, I, I like the warm weather. I need to find a tropical place to live later on in my Let's life. Let's just buy an island, you know, just, just a nice little island somewhere. Nope, nope, nope. We're getting a little cultish there. Uh, don't, want, don't want that to happen. Anyhow. Well, I didn't say I was going to invite anyone else. Well, so. <laughs> I mean, you do have a point. I guess if it's just the family. Can't really say much. <laughs> okay, well, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, so what what are we doing here? We're still in Second Samuel, right? Still in Second Samuel. Uh, we're in chapter seven. Uh, David has brought the ark back from Jerusalem. Uh, he's had his confrontation with Michal, and now, or he's brought the ark back to Jerusalem. Sorry, not from uh, Jerusalem. And you know, he's starting to uh, recognize that hey, this is this is real. He is the king of Israel. He's not just some marauding warlord or terrorist as Nabal called him he is a uh, he is a real king of a nation so Brueggemann has spent a lot of time on this particular chapter coming up because he calls it the foundational um, piece of the evangelical um, ideology and I'm not going to go back and read the big quote that I did last time, but I did want to pick up some smaller things that he had to say about it. He, he says the, the ideology, ideological utterance, and he's talking about this chapter, is the root of evangelical faith in the Bible. That is the faith that relies on the free promise of the gospel. It's the taproot of the Messianic ideas of ancient Israel. The evangelical faith comes from this in the form of the royal ideology. Right. So this is kind of central for most of us who grew up in the evangelical faith. This is kind of where this started. Now, how close or far from that idea we are today and how it fits into politics today, that's a whole other topic and we won't go there. But when you realize that this chapter really portrays this new development with God and how he deals with people, 
but it's still very ancient, you begin to get a fuller picture of why we can anticipate Jesus being king and why that really is good news. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go into this chapter. We're actually going to break in the middle of it, and we're going to run over to Psalm 89, and then we'll come back and finish up with the last half of the chapter. So uh, we got a lot of time to spend on this particular chapter. And so in verse 1, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given given him rest, from all surrounding enemies. Okay. So first of all, we got a problem here because we don't know exactly when this happened. Okay. There, there's no chronology given here. The next chapter does not provide events that concern with chrono- chronology. So we don't have even that to fall back on. The main point isn't so much that there's no uh, wars or no nothing to fight for after this. It's that David has brought the ark back to Jerusalem, and now he can rest because God's in his house. And we obviously know that after this, David's going to have wars to fight. I'm the, the whole next chapter is nothing but David's wars and battles that he fights. And um, so there, it poses a problem that we have to kind of figure out. Now, the sages, they do this by um, saying this is not peace in the sense that David's not fighting, it's peace in the sense that David's not being attacked. Every war from here on out, David instigates. He goes out against someone. People aren't coming in to oppress Israel. And um, how true that is, is, it really does seem to line up. And so you mm-hmm. can see why they come with that idea. Because when we get to chapter eight, oh my goodness, it's nothing but David's battles and what he's doing. And uh, matter of fact, we're going to hit that. We're just going to kind of hit the high points of that chapter because it's it's boring. Uh, it's one of the few yeah. chapters I feel confident saying. a lot of military that. strategy when, with vague details. Not even a lot of strategy. It's just, okay, he went out it's and just, killed them and he oh, destroyed just, them. Okay, so it's worse than that. It's just a list of victories. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so in this chapter, because we don't know where it falls. Like a list of victories is a bad thing. Uh, right. Like, <laughs> reading it, just reading a list. I'm not saying the victories are bad. I'm saying it's just reading a list of accomplishments, one right after the other. Gets... It's the closest thing in the Bible I've seen to recording something like a history book would recount it. Sure. You know, here's your here's your list of facts, and there's really no personality, and there, the few details that it has, and I know we're kind of looking ahead here, the few details that it has are really disturbing. Okay. And so um, I, I was, but we got some good some good ways to deal with those details that are disturbing. So I look forward to that. And just a little teaser for people to come back and listen to that episode. This is in chapter eight. It's the scenario where David hamstrung the horses, which, you know me. I mean, if we're going to watch a movie, kill all the people. I don't care. Just don't hurt the horse or the dog. That That's not. (laughs) So anyway, so we don't. In this chapter, in chapter seven, what we're looking at is where does this fit in the timeline? And again, no real great answer to that. Um, And we just kind of have to accept not so much that we know when it happened other than it happened. So the, the main point is David is ruling. And this is an important part of, of what happens next, because what goes on in the rest of the chapter with David looking at building a temple for God, and I, I'm hoping everybody's reading ahead, but when he's building a temple for God, one of the prerequisites for that in all ancient cultures is that it is a time of rest within the kingdom. So mm-hmm. it's not just Israel. So 
Verse 2, And David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in the tent. So this is the first appearance of Nathan the prophet we have in our Bible. Uh, We hear that David is living in a house of cedar. He's got a house of wood. And it's being, um, as a house of cedar and being someplace significant, but specifically of cedar, it's paralleling the palaces that are built for Assyrian kings. So he's just as important as Assyrian kings. And we're beginning to see kind of his rise in stature here in just that one little uh, phrase. Mm-hmm. And I, I love those little details. And for the original reader, this would have so much information that we just miss because we think, okay, house of cedar. That's what people who live in the hills that don't have anything better to build their house out of either build it out of cedar logs, you know, like the old settlers, mm-hmm. or you you are c- super rich and you've got the cedar line closet, but you know, which I would one day want. But anyway, that's another story. But you know, he's he's solid, he's respectable, he he's stable at, at this point, and so is his house, and. It's being contrasted with the impermanence and the vulnerability that we find in a tent. Now, if you remember back to 1 Samuel, when the Ark of the Lord is, is taken, and you remember back to Uzzah, you know the Ark doesn't need to be defended. Right. And so to, for the Ark to be in the tent isn't posing any kind of danger to the Ark. There's just, it's a perception problem. Right. That, that's all it boils down to. And you also notice David never states his intentions. He never says, I'm going to build a temple. He just says, I live in a house of cedar. God lives in a tent. And Nathan understands immediately what he's saying. And, and the underlying ex- expectation is one that both men would have been familiar with. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy 12.10, it says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord, the Lord your God is giving, to, giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from your enemies around so that uh, you live in safety, turn the page, then to that place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, and all the finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So... God says, when you get there, basically, I'm going to show you the right place to worship me. Mm. And we can go back and listen to the episode about the Macomb, which we talked about quite a bit. God's going to show, hey, this is where you're going to do all this stuff because it's where I want it to happen. Yep. And it's going to happen after you cross over the, Israel, over the Jordan, when you're in the land and I give you rest. Well, how did the chapter open? David now has rest. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why it's so important. It's not whether or not he had battles to fight or not does he have rest and so basically there were three expect expectations for the people when they entered into israel one is that they establish a king that's in deuteronomy 17 14 through 20 two is that they wipe out the amalekites deuteronomy 25 19 Mm -hmm. three is that they establish a place for god's name to dwell and be worshipped so build a temple and we already know that uh, we've got a king David's Check. already, yeah, David's already taken care of the Amalekites, mm-hmm. and that's when they uh, ziklag that situation. And so the next obvious step is we build a temple, and that's what David feels like he needs to do. And, you know, it, it's the next step, according to the Torah, but it's also the next step logically, it's the next step politically, 
and culturally it is the expected step. So building a temple was something almost all kings did during times of peace. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got these armies, so you've got workforces and resources available. You aren't having to send them out to fight a battle, so you aren't building chariot, chariots or whatever else with the wood. And the men, you, you've got this rowdy bunch of men who were used to being active. And, you know, I think most of us know that this last year we've got, you know, we've got had family at home with COVID and what have you, and they aren't even as used to being as active as these guys are, and they almost went stir crazy. So you put these these men who are used to being very physical, very, uh, you know, always on attack, you've got to put them to work. Because if you don't put them to work, number one, they're going to be driving everybody in the land crazy. Number two, God forbid they organize and pull a coup and overthrow the new king. Mm-hmm. This is part of maintaining control. And so and it's good for the economy too. Very good for the economy. Large building projects. Exactly, exactly. We've already talked about that some when the, um, the king of uh, Tyre came down and started bringing in gifts for David. Mm-hmm. And so within this situation, David's time, it's, it, it's all tied together. It, it, it all makes total sense, and you really can't disentangle the religious and the cultural threads at this time. This idea that um, you can separate sacred and, and profane time and aspects of our lives is really kind of unique to the culture we live in. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you look at most other cultures, even things like how you open a door, how you tie your shoes, these were all tied up in how you expressed what you believe. Right. And so when we're talking in David's day, we have to remember you could not say, okay, I'm a Jew now, so I'm going to worship Yahweh, but now I'm just regular Joe on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't like Christians who go, oh, well, I'm, I'm a Christian because I'm at church, but I'm a regular Joe in the bar on Saturday night. Right. They, they didn't have that bifurcation. And so it was very customary for kings to say my next political move and also my next religious move is to build and so temples were were tangible proof of unity with the gods if a king was allowed to build a temple on behalf of a god then god must be that god must be with them uh they were seen as a mean to secure blessings because if i mean if if you build a house for someone you think that person would respond with gratefulness and appreciation and now you get the blessings from them. I mean, I would hope you know, if someone wants to build me a house, we can test this theory. Um, <laughs> but um, blessings were also typically uh, conveyed in fertility at this point in time. Right. So, you know, this is going to make your uh, nation that much more uh, stronger. It's going to be richer. It's going to have more resources. But what's interesting is we have the Gita cylinders, which are Sumerian cylinders. And they're describing the building of the temple of Nergusa. I always get this. Ningursu, uh, Lagash. And so we discussed this. So the cylinders, are they like columns? Are they, what are they? Um, you know, 
if I say anything, I'm probably going to get it wrong. Uh, I saw pictures of them, and I didn't really get a, an idea of, of size. But they, they do recount stories, um, and they're just covered in writing. And you can you can look at pictures of them, and we'll, we'll put um, – I know, I keep saying this. I will get the show notes done soon, guys. <laughs> I will put links, I promise. Uh, but we did discuss these in – we discussed this particular story when we talked about the episode of the Kenor with the lyre and the harp. Mm-hmm. And um, it opened by citing economic prosperity as the setting for building a temple – and it's the reason for Enlil to continue blessing the city with fertility and abundance. And this was, uh, in particular, was a reference to the flooding of the Tigris River. So uh, Zakir uh, of Hamat wrote in these temples, I built, house for, uh, I built houses for the gods everywhere in my country. And the country he's referring to the, or would know, be known today as Syria. So in building a temple, David is, would really be validating his claim to the throne. He would obligate god to bless israel uh, as far as in the eyes of the people and he would be fulfilling the commands of the torah so from every conceivable human perception of this it's the next right thing to do Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. even the obedient thing to do and the we should also pick up on this interchange between david and um nathan as the tone of it. You know, we should look at the mood because this is not Nathan coming to make the royal decree like he does with the Bathsheba situation. Mm-hmm. This is a conversation between friends. I mean, when you get to verse three, Nathan says, and Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. I mean, Nathan's going to immediately renounce his position. He's going to reverse it. But uh, he, you know, He's having a conversation with a friend. Unfortunately, what this is, because people don't read with that tone and the idea of what's going on, understanding what's going on here, critics are going to say, ah, this is a gotcha moment, because in the third verse, Nathan says, go do it. But then when Nathan comes back, he says, no, wait a minute. God says, hold your horses. Well, I mean, I, I mean I've had conversations with people where they present me different ideas of things business models and plans they want to do and i think hey that sounds like a good idea and then we do a little research in it and we're like nah man not so much I, yeah it was... i mean i've had plenty of i mean <laughs> i'm an ideas guy i don't like doing some of the stuff that i have come up with but <laughs> yeah i need somebody to like follow through with the execution of ideas like i will give you all my good ideas just so i can see them get done mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and i'll be like hey that that was my idea and so. We can't back it financially either, just so you know. <laughs> so we're going to need you to do that too. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not back. asking for money there, by the way. We're just saying if you want to carry out, that's just the reality. So That's a conversation for another day. Let's get back to what we're doing here. Right. So, but you know, when you look at the tone of the conversation and, and it, it does seem like just a casual encounter between friends because David never says, hey, I'm going to build a temple. David's like just making observations about the reality of mm-hmm. the situation. And Nathan goes, hey, you know, God's with you. Just do it. If it's in your heart, it's a good thing. How many times have we heard that at church? Mm-hmm. I mean, we won't go down that rabbit trail. But he isn't formally presenting David with the word of the Lord. He never says, thus saith the Lord. There's not that prophetic proclamation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes what makes sense isn't the right thing to do. And sometimes we need to back up and really ask God, hey, 
do I need to do this or do I need to take another route? And so this is what what's going on here. And, you know, it's not a bad idea until God says it's a bad idea. Sure. At that moment, that's when building a temple is is a bad idea. And why is it a bad idea? Because God said so. And it doesn't matter how honoring or how glorifying to God this temple might be if it's in violation of God's commands. And so, verse 4, um, but, at that, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So, now God is speaking, and now everything that, Dave, that Nathan says to David, whether or not it's true, is going to demonstrate whether or not David, uh, Nathan can be trusted as a, a prophet, because does he relate these words that he gets in verse 4 and on to David accurately? So verse 5, he says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, there's your prophetic proclamation, mm-hmm. would you build me a house to dwell in? So the Emily translation of that is, did I ask you to build me a house? I right. mean, it's pretty much just what God's asking him. You know, we're not told in this chapter why God it denies David the chance to build a temple. We're going to uh, learn later it's because he's a man of war. But if we stay with what is here in this chapter and not look forward, the there's only one solution, and it's that David is not the one to build the temple. Now, if you go back and look at what um, I read earlier in Deuteronomy 12, you'll see that all of those commands in building the temple were plural. Mm-hmm. None of them were singular. God is com- um, commanding the people to build him a temple, not a king. Right. And if you look at how the tabernacle was built, you see that it was a community event. And matter of fact, it, the people were so involved and so excited and so committed to get the tabernacle built that Moses had to turn people away. So what David is... What a problem to have. <laughs> can you imagine? Oh my goodness. You, you Guys, you're giving too much money to the church. You need to stop your overwhelming us. I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to find any... Anyone preaching that today? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. You should not bait me like that. <laughs> I wasn't baiting you. I wasn't baiting. I was making an observation that not a popular message to hear on Sunday morning. It, it's it, it really isn't. But you know, this is what God is saying. You know, he he really wants that joyful giver. But you know, I okay, a little bit of a rabbit trail. I think one of the things we need to do as believers is really stop and think about where we're giving our money. Mm-hmm. What's it being used for? Is it being used to actively advance the kingdom? Is it, active, is it being used to, to bring someone comfort and fame and popularity? And are we investing in the things God really cares about? And, you know, I'm not saying don't give to your local church. Churches have expenses. Mm-hmm. Buildings cost money. Electricity costs money. If you are in Oklahoma and you don't want to sit in a room sweltering in July, give to your church. Sure. That's how they keep the AC on. That's how they have the microphone so that you can hear them. Uh, you know, all of this stuff. Absolutely, give to your local church. But when it goes beyond that, 
really consider what's being done with the mo- with the money. That is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's I'm going to leave it there. Well, one other thing. <laughs> I when a pastor working specifically in a local church, he needs to be able to live and not worry about how he's going to take care of his family. We need I, to be I taking care yeah. of them. I, I agree with that. So, but you know, you got to make sure because you know every, everyone knows the verses about you know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the reference on that? Because I don't know. I but but <laughs> what Paul's talking about there is being able to be content regardless and and finding his joy in Christ regardless of his living situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. I, it's real popular, especially right now, for people to say, well, you know, maybe everything that's going on is going to be good for the church because the church always grows in, in times of strife and, and oppression, which, you know, hey, yeah. seems to be historically true. But maybe we could also practice being content, finding our joy in the Lord, uh, even when things are going well. Right. Um, and I think that what Wait. happens is, uh, you know, we get in those times of peace and we kind of forget where our provision comes from, mm-hmm. and then we we get complacent, and I think that's what we're seeing happen with a lot of these uh, quote moral failings of celebrity <laughs> pastors. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to to just throw stones. I mean, but I think that we don't. I think we spend so much time trying to comfort the people who are in. Situ- bad situations, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, we need to comfort those people mm-hmm. that we don't have a plan for, hey, what if things are actually going good? Right. And um, I, I, I think that's a discipline, uh, it's a failing of discipline in the church. And, and I don't mean by like, you know, casting people out type of church discipline. I mean, discipline as in... As How in you be- practice As things. being a disciple, as someone who practices being disciplined and mm-hmm. living a disciplined life, who practices a discipline, you know, that's... Even in the time of prosperity, that we yes. would actually take time to do what is right when things are going well. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing here with this. Things are going well for David. Mm-hmm. And so he says, hey, the next logical step is I'm going to do this. And he provides for us an example. Now, God says, no, not yet. And, you know, maybe that should be, maybe that's a word to future church builders and people who want to do church plants where I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it might be something to consider. I'm not making this a prescriptive thing, but something to consider. Maybe it's time to step back and ask God, how do you serve where you are? I mean, mm-hmm. it's real popular in, in a lot of churches to want to push people to become missionaries. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a missionary. If no, you're called to that, wrong with that. Nope. go do, go I and do lots of great missionaries who oh, are doing great work around the world. Absolutely. Um, real shout out real quick. Uh, if anybody wants to support a missionary, I've got a friend, Sharon Hearn. She's one of my favorites and you know, she's always needing to raise money to continue her work in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, contact me, we'll get you in contact with her. And uh, if you want to support somebody who's really doing ministry work mm-hmm. uh, and I can say that because I know her. Yep. And yep. so, but if you're not, if God just doesn't put it on your heart to do missionary work out somewhere in the middle of nowhere, how do you be faithful with where you are? Even if it's not where you think you should be, or even if you think it's, you know, not where God would even have you. Cause I mean, David was surprised by this mm-hmm. and he still, what we're going to find is he goes to a lot of trouble 
to take the resources and the advantages of where he is to set up Solomon to carry through. And how many of us would be in such a better position if the people around us were faithful to take where they, the resources from where they are to set it up so the next person can follow through? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so whether it's your kids or just someone around you. So yeah, maybe, maybe stop, you know, camping out on a bunch of resources to build up your own building. Yeah. I mean, and, and bless someone else mm-hmm. in their ministry. Yeah. Just a thought. Well, because, you know, the point is if, if one of us wins in this kingdom thing, we all win. We're all on the same team. We're not in competition against right. our brothers and sisters. And I think a lot of Christians have forgotten that. Yep. Yeah, we, we have and, to get away from the business model of, of church and, and loving people. Well, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we, we try to promote good resources beyond ourselves. I mean, Carmen Ives, uh, Torah Tuesday on YouTube, uh, Take Two with her daughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's somebody, man. The only way she's affiliated with Raven Creek is that we've had a few conversations. I mean, there's no official connection. Yeah, yeah but, but Good we still love her work. Good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, and then we've got people that we have been able to work with that are affiliated, like uh, Josh has got his new stuff mm-hmm. going on, and Joe and Luke. And so why do we do these things? Why do we work with these people? Because we're not in competition. Right. And so, and the great thing is they don't feel like they're in competition with us. So, uh, you know, it, it's family. It's yep. about everybody winning. So, okay. Now that we've really just... We've gone quite far afield. <laughs> That's okay. Look. Yeah. So... Back to David's not proposing a national endeavor, and that's what God is is kind of squelching. He He's saying, God's saying, I'm not going to be indebted to an individual here, because it's not about David, the person. It is about the kingdom of Israel as a whole. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that goes back to what we were just talking about. It needs to be about the kingdom. And so... Um, if David had managed to build this temple, the, the religious and political implications of this would have been huge because now David would have trapped God. He would have been able to contain God, and now mm. God is obligated to do what David says. The fact that God still remains free, even though David is his king, is saying that David is always going to be in service to God. And so now there, there's some interesting consequences with how that works out with Solomon. And we'll talk about that when we get to his life. But Mm -hmm. if we're just here in this moment, uh, this is kind of, this is where we have to stay. We have to apply what's presented to us because here's the thing. I can take one situation, put 20 different people in it and what they're going to walk away from with what they learned are 20 different things. Right. So God is very good at going, this is the situation this person needs to learn their lesson. And then another person may need to be a totally different circumstance to learn their lesson. Mm-hmm. So um, the the sages, they, they realize that there's some major implications if David uh, does consider this. And man, they just run with it. They claim that because David was so righteous and so close to God, that if he had been allowed to build this temple, that God's presence in the land was would be so great that the temple never could have been destroyed. So, yeah, so he it had to be built by his flawed son, Solomon, so that when Israel does sin, the temple can be destroyed and proper discipline can be accomplished. Hmm. Now, 
The other option is they say that if David had built this and God came to indwell the temple, that his presence would have been so strong that immediately all of Israel would have been killed because they all had sin. Hmm. And so um, God is basically saying, no, I'm not going to let you do something that's ultimately going to be harmful to the, um, to the nation as a whole. I, I, don't, I don't know how they get there from here, but <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's one of those fun tidbits uh, that you, you got to throw out. Because I, I, I think there is a certain level of, I don't think that that thought process is correct, but I do think there's a certain level of um, truth to it. Uh, when I was in seminary, one of my profs suggested that the reason why we don't see an overabundance of miraculous healings I do believe they occur. I've seen and mm. I've been around these things, so I'm not negating it. But why we don't just see them, you know, people walking down the streets, healing everyone, is because with that kind of partnership with God, let's go that way, partnership with God, where God is really working through that person, it comes great power. You know, great power comes great responsibility to throw mm-hmm. some Spider-Man in there. And... Yeah. um and most Christians today are not disciplined enough to act responsibly with that kind of power. I remember you go back to Peter with Peter and um, oh Sapphira, the the guys that get, the guy and gal who gave the money. Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you. And you know, Peter makes a pronouncement; they fall over dead. So he, not only did he have the ability to heal, he had the ability to kill. Yeah. And so yeah, and I, yeah. you never see anyone wanting that gift. And <laughs> well. Okay, we're going to just keep <laughs> because I'm sure there are and we could we don't want to out anyone. <laughs> hey. I didn't out anyone. But you never hear it preached from a pulpit. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, we should move on. Yeah. So, verse 6. Uh, he says This is God still speaking. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I have been moving, but I have been moving about in a tent for a dwelling in all the places where I, where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the prophets of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God saying, I've been moving around this whole time. Mm -hmm. I've had people speaking on my behalf the whole time. Mm-hmm. I never told one of them to build me a temple. Right. So back up, buddy. And, and so the, this is where I started to get excited in, in studying this. So I'm going to stick with what Brueggemann says for a second. Brueggemann reads this as uh, God basically saying, I'm not going to be tamed. Right. I can move around the the um, the land. I can do what I want in the land, moving where I wish, and that was huge because all of the other gods of all the other nations, they were tied to specific geographic points, sure. not just one country. Mm-hmm. It was the point where they were believed to have emerged from the earth, and a lot of these temples that was where they they were the most powerful, mm-hmm. and or that they had been thrown to the, however they arrived at that spot, that became their primary location. And that Mm -hmm. was where their power is best demonstrated. Now there could be secondary locations where they could also be worshiped and their presence was contained there. God says, don't need it. I I can do whatever I want. I don't need to stay out of the rain. Like I'm above the rain like kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and you know, God is also saying, 
I'm perfectly capable of making my will known from a tent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need all of the trappings for you kinda, to hear. Kind of using that those simple things to confound the wise. Exactly, exactly. So using the smallest nation to accomplish the greatest task on earth. Yeah, yeah. Which, if you look at world history, that should just blow your mind. And mm-hmm. so that's a whole other rabbit trails but anyway read the gifts of the jews that's, yeah uh, by cahill that's a pretty good one if you want to kind of look at some of israel's influence in history yeah in a broader spectrum within like european history and mm-hmm. and understanding how big of an impact it made so very good overview there uh cahill's a great introduction to a lot of yeah a lot of major events uh-huh Hinges of History series is what he calls it. So exactly. How the Irish Saved Civilization. That's That That one was my favorite. The Gifts of the Jews is a close runner-up. Loved How the Irish Saved Civilization. So, okay. But God doesn't ask for a temple is basically what Bergerman's pointing out. And he certainly didn't ask David to act as his national patron. And so when God... Um, God is going to prevent lines from being blurred here. God supports David. David does not support God. That's one of the things that's being accomplished by making sure David doesn't build a temple. Mm. Now, Zamora points out that this is in direct contrast to the Baal cycles. And one of the best preserved stories about Baal is about his desire for a larger house. This is one of the things that causes a lot of problems and drama, and he wants his house to be bigger and better than all the other gods. Mm-hmm. And the conflict. Um, leads in um yeah evidently i didn't write that down anyway there's a there's a conflict there let's just go with that but um in calamity ensues yeah disaster occurs so anyway um but in rejecting the 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 temple god is basically saying he's not as materialistic as the canaanite gods right and so his nature and his character runs in direct contrast to the Canaanite gods, which I think is interesting. Temples, they're just so overly fashionable and passe. Oh. So last year. Uh, but, you know, and, and not only does he not want a temple, he doesn't need a temple to be manifest to his people. And and he doesn't need a temple to satisfy some kind of greedy desire. Right. So God is saying... Everything you know about gods it is wrong when you apply it to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the nation isn't going to get this if they immediately go in and build a temple the second they have a, a great king. And so there has to be this break. And we're going to talk some more about that later. But Yeah. And you can also see how David contrasts to Saul and the fact that the temple didn't even cross Saul's mind, apparently. Bringing the ark back never occurred to Saul. Why wasn't in why wasn't it in his capital city? Right. He he was content. God's too scary. Leave it out there. Mm-hmm. I can tip my hat as I ride by, but I don't have to engage too deeply. So verse eight. Now therefore thus ye shall say to my servant David, again God talking to Nathan, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. So God's reminding David, hey, you're a shepherd. Mm-hmm. Without me, you are nothing. Every accomplishment that has happened in David's life is directly linked to God's divine activity. We've seen this over and over again. And 
you know, for God to call David to be king was to basically call a nobody to represent him. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying to David, who do you think you are? You are not great enough to build me a temple. And this is going to come into play because ancient kings weren't just chosen from whoever looked good. They were chosen because they had the right lineage dating back to those fallen angels, those Mm -hmm. Nephilim. David was none of those. So first 9A, I'm going to break this one up because it's got a lot of stuff in it. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all the enemies from before you. So first God looks back and, or causes David to look back. And David is celebrated as king by the people because he is a victorious warlord. Israel based their acceptance of David as king on the fact that he had led them out into battle. That mm-hmm. was in Second uh, Samuel 5.2. And God reminds David that the truth is David didn't win even one of those battles. Right. God did it on his behalf. And then God shifts his focus to the future. So we pick up a 9b. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. It's an interesting verse. It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't say. <laughs> yeah. Is that an echo back to the Nephilim and the other kings tracing their lineage? It, it definitely is. And what's interesting is none of the commentators that I read actually picked up on how much information is in this. I mean, none of them commented on this verse at all. Hmm. So making a name connects us right back to Abraham. We're back in Genesis 15. Well, and that should should also connect us back to uh, Babel. It it does, because, yeah. Babel, Babel. I almost never say Babel. That's weird. But anyway, but it connects us back there. (laughs) It does. Yeah, well, okay, so Genesis 12, 2, which... Okay, Genesis 12, 2 is where we pick up with Abraham. Genesis 11 is Babel. And so Babel, if you remember, there is absolutely no names Mm -hmm. in that entire account. And we've got an episode on that for people who are just joining us. There's no names. And that's where we get that play on the words Sham, Shem, and Shemaim. And so we've got that repetition that's going on. So genealogy, Babel. And then the call of Abraham with more genealogy. And so there's that great contrast in people who are opposing God, not having a name and trying to make themselves a name and God calling Abraham out and saying, I will bestow a name on you because Genesis 12, 2 says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so God is, um, you know, God would not allow humanity to create for themselves what he freely gives to Abraham. God makes a name for people, gives a name to the people that nobody else expects. Mm -hmm. And it is, when we look at Babel, and we can get into how that's connected to uh, Nimrod, which, by the way, uh, T.J. Stedman uh, Stedman in um, uh, the Questions About Giants Mm -hmm. book. Answers to Giants questions. Answers to Giant questions. Okay. There we go, because I always get that messed up. Sorry, Tim. Anyway, but the uh, he goes into this about Nimrod and all of that, where Nimrod is part of the Nephilim and why he's involved in this building of Babel, even though his name isn't uh, connected. And so some really great stuff there. But again, Babel and Genesis 12. I need to read his book. It's on my list. I got to read it like before it was yeah, released. Yeah. <laughs> so. but, um, yeah, I need to order that soon. Um, the 
because I, I just had some, I was like, ooh, I had some really interesting thoughts about that. But I'm like, I wonder if he answers that in the book. So I'll need he to. He probably does. On. It's really comprehensive. It's everything. I mean, as far as I could tell, and I'm sure there might be somebody who can dig out some more stuff, but everything in the Bible dealing with giants and looking at different ways to, to address these issues and how it all fits together into the larger narrative. Really interesting. And it's good to see it brought together. If you're mm -hmm. a Heiser fan and enjoy, enjoy studying the Divine Council worldview, this kind of like comes in and fills in some of the gaps that Heiser kind of presumes that his people understand. Right, right. And so... Well, I mean, and, and not to... And that's no uh, diss on right. Heiser because he definitely, I mean... You can't address it all. Yeah, you can't. He's only got so much time and so much capacity, and he not only does the podcast, he also does the the school. I mean, he's... Several podcasts, because you get the paranormal, you've got the... Uh, he's got another... Fringe pop. Uh, fringe pop, yeah, so... Yeah, he's he's a busy guy, and so yeah, he, <laughs> he can't get to everything, and what he does supply is really good. Exactly. So yeah, both of those sources are great, but... This to make a name and to make a great name connects us back to Genesis 12, like I just read, but it also connects us back to Genesis 6 when men of the name, or your Bible is probably going to say men of renown, or the mm -hmm. heroes of old, it's literally men of the name lived on the earth. And so Abraham is the first step to reversing this Genesis 6 curse. Right. Now David's being, you know, kind of brought in, folded into that history. He's the next step on the journey. And we're going to see that there is this huge connection with the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and they do flow together. So we're going to go into the next verse, verse 10. And I will appoint a place, a Macomb, for my people Israel, that will, um, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So... Again, we've got that connection. Macomb is that place where, where Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed on the altar, where that covenant mm -hmm. between God and Abraham was really solidified with, with Abraham stepping into his aspect of it. Um, the um, Several commentators read Macomb as sacred space. And we again, we talked about this on a previous episode, but a lot of them see them specifically referring to the temple. And so you can read it as specifically uh, being the temple, more general, generally the land of Israel itself in its entirety. And then there's a somewhere in between where Macomb is simply Jerusalem. Now, Zamora follows Murray in applying this to Jerusalem as the city, that this is going to be the, the place where God plants uh, David. I lean more towards the temple reading myself, or at least... Uh, making sure that it encompasses the temple when we talk about it, because we ha have these direct Abrahamic uh, connections in the preceding verse, and we do have Abraham being taken to the Macomb. And then we have this command in Deuteronomy, uh, verse 12, 11, that the temple is to be built at the Macomb, the place that God sets, the place that mm -hmm. God reveals. Now, it's traditionally believed that the place where God offered up, offered up Isaac would become the place where the temple would be built. So they think that there's this connection there. There's some debate, but I kind of like the continuity of it. I'm just going to say I, I really like that idea. Um, in verse... Uh, in this verse where it says God says where God says I will plant them, the first place God plants 
is the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Well, if you followed any of John Walton's work and been with us very long, you know that the the building of Eden yeah, was a temple. It's a, yeah, absolutely. It's a temple account. That's what's going on. Adam and Eve are the priest within this temple. And I did include Eve in there too. Uh, they are working with God. They're the first priests. They're the first prophets. They're the first ones to fulfill these roles on earth. And if we look at the temple later, we're going to find all sorts of references back to the garden imagery. We've got the tree of knowledge and the lampstand. We've got cherubim. We've got different plants and animals. All of this will be represented because the temple is supposed to mirror that, that garden of Eden. So, so when we're talking about planting, God's going to plant his people and we have that reference that brings us back to to Eden. So that's the reason why I lean towards the Macomb here being referring specifically to the temple, mm-hmm. or at least needs to encompass it. So, um, you know, this is David's desire as a king. He wants to create a sacred place where people can meet with God, and that's that's what his job as a king is. He he's providing a safe place Mm. for people to partner with God. And, you know, I wonder how much that would change our perspective of church and what churches are supposed to be accomplishing if we begin thinking about churches as being a place where we allow people the opportunity, the safe place to partner and align with God, to do what God wants done in this world Mm. instead of, you know, whatever we think of church today. Because I don't, excuse me, I don't think we think of it quite that way. And so. Verse 10c, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So uh, we find the same wording. It's a very interesting wording. It's not uh, super common. We find it in 2 Samuel 3, 34, Psalms 89, 22, 1 Chronicles 17, 9. Now, 1 Chronicles 17, 9 is a repeat of the same verse, so it mm. kind of almost doesn't count. Um, the Hebrew here, this violent men is sons of wickedness not Mm. violent men. And so of the three times this phrase is used, we we find it in David's lament over Abner. Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one who falls before the sons of the wicked, you have fallen. So the Hebrew there is the exact same, even though the English is different. And it's in in God's promises to David here in, in 1 Chronicles. And then in Psalms 89, 22, and Zamora notes that Psalms 89.22 explains 2 Samuel 7. So okay. if you've studied much of the Divine Council worldview, uh, you will know that, that Psalms 89 is one of the big psalms for supporting this, this idea. Right. And so I'm going to read um, just a couple of verses here. This is verses 5 and 7 of Psalms 89. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Okay, so assembly of the faithful ones, another way of saying divine counsel. In the skies, not on the earth. So these are not human judges like a lot of people want to argue. We don't have judges sitting in the clouds. Even Israel didn't, no matter how great they were. These are divine beings. Who among the heavenly beings, there it is, spelled out plain as day, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, God, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of his holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. 
So that verse tells us that we're talking about something outside those verses tell us we're talking about something beyond this earthly realm. And so people who want to say there's no such thing as the divine counsel in the Bible, go back and read this, you know, Psalm 89. Yeah. And, you know, it, and it's funny because it's pretty clear there if you're, if you're paying attention. But I, I don't I, know how it could be much clearer. Well, and I, think, I do think it's really funny the primary kickback that this gets is, well, what, why does God need these people? Why does God need this why divine counsel? Why does God counsel? need and any? Like, he doesn't need any of it. He, doesn't, he wants it. Yeah, he it, doesn't need us. Well, yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think, and again, I, I think I said this early on, um, and, I, and I say this kind of half-joking, but also really not, mm-hmm. that like once you figure out that the universe is superfluous, right? your theology gets a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, yeah. But you mean you can deal with things with God just deciding to do something because he's God? Yeah. Why, <laughs> why, why the universe? I, I quit. You know, once you go, God wanted to do it. If that can be your answer there, mm-hmm. and you can be okay with that, I mean, there are other things you can tack onto that as to why we exist. You, you, you really get over a lot of the existential dread of like, well, <laughs> why are we here? Are we actually fulfilling our purpose? Well, you know, a lot of those answers can be found right. in the Bible, but because, why? Because God wanted people. He wanted, mm-hmm. he wanted to do it. And if you, if you can be okay with that, the rest of theology gets easier. It, it's amazing how that works. When you start to really grasp some of those big concepts and just like be okay with them, it, everything else does fall into place. You can just kind of rest in it. It's yeah. like, like why, why does my daughter like to watch insects? Why do we like to watch the birds out the back window? Why? Beca- because it brings us joy. Mm-hmm. Makes us happy. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, and I think you have to have, if you're, gonna, I think your theology has to start with because it makes God happy to have those things. Mm-hmm. And if your theology is so bound up in nothing we do ever makes God happy, <laughs> then you can't have, I don't think you can proceed with a God who is joyful. Mm-hmm. And because I a God th- who sings over us, yeah, God, yeah. It, it just blows my mind how that little switch there, and and it's and you're you're denying mm-hmm. the, the the foundation, couple of foundational verses in the Bible. You know, when right. God created the world, He said it's good. Yeah, and women came along, and He's very good. You know, <laughs> and, and and to to deny that God is happy with creation. Yes, the, the the earth is fallen, but I don't think it's fallen so much that God's just completely done and angry with it all mm-hmm. the time. We see what happens mm-hmm. when that happens. He sends a flood and wipes people out. You know, he rains fire and brimstone on cities when he's done. Yeah. When it gets to that point, it happens. So I think you're ignoring a whole lot of the Bible to believe God is just always angry at, at humanity for well, everything. And I, I think there, there's this idea that we've, we've painted God in the brushstrokes of Zeus. And, you know, he's sitting on the throne with the lightning bolts just waiting to just zap mm-hmm, everybody mm-hmm. instead of saying, hey, you know what? I really liked making hummingbirds. They were a lot of fun to put all that little detail into all their little feathers and this mm-hmm. quirky little beak. 
I really enjoyed that. Did you like the hummingbird I made? You know, I, I, I think God is very relational. And I mean, we, we say that a lot in church and so much so it's kind of lost it, it, its meaning and depth. But, you know, when you sit down and really think about the God who does command lightning bolts and the God who does make hummingbirds, then he wants to know you. That's insane. Mm-hmm. That brings you to a place of worship where you can look out and say, in the middle of all of this greatness and all this minutia mm-hmm. that he cares so much about, he put me right there in the middle of it. And he wants to know me. He wants to interact with me. Now you don't have to to live in that place of dread and fear of this eternal damnation and worry about being punished, you can actually begin to reach out and respond and go... And believe that God is good. Yeah. And, and then, and that, to, to kind of take us back to there, you kind of start letting go of just because something exists, it's because God needed it. Right. Because we look at the universe as in this thing exists because the universe needed it. Yeah. And we kind of equate God with the material. So anyway, that's, <laughs> I, I feel like I got us kind of a little far off course there, but I, who knows who just, needs to hear that? Need, I, I think, I do think we need to look at it as the universe exists because God enjoys making a universe. Well, and I think it, and that's when I get into it, it's possible he made more than one. I mean, I'm sure he's not out of resources. But you don't think that an infinite being is totally content with just like right here, right now? I mean, when you really understand, I mean, nobody's ever really going to understand, but when you begin to get a concept of what infinity actually means, it's Mm -hmm. not just all the way back to the all the way future. It's all the depths and dimensions within that. And, you know, try to hold that image in your head. I mean, just as small as you can possibly go. Here's another one you can kind (laughs) of, little little tweak your brain when trying to think about the infinite, is in in an infinite set of numbers. Uh-oh, numbers. The number of even numbers is equal to the number of numbers. Stop it. <laughs> so there's your philosophy. <laughs> yeah, think uh, about that. No, Well, I, but no, I, I do. I think we need to be thinking about those things that bring us to the place where our brains almost break because it makes us, one, realize how finite we are. Mm-hmm. And it really drives home who we are in comparison to God. And the point isn't, like I said, that, 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 trembling horror of this divine being it's like he wants to be my friend Mm -hmm. he wants to be my father he wants to take care of me and be active in my life this should bring you joy but it should also be kind of overwhelming because it is (laughs) and and, yeah and and we should i do think we should take those moments and let the thought uh, let those thoughts Mm -hmm. uh, of god's greatness overwhelm us but but then also we do have to kind of dial it back so we can function in the world and do the good he's commanded us to do Mm -hmm. so that being said let's get back to psalm 89 Um, and I know, we'll I know. Find a find a spot to, to I, jump off here in a little bit. I just I, I love all this stuff because uh, awe really is the place where worship begins. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so Psalm eighty nine and, and, and chapter seven, Zemura actually 
leads us through some lexical connections. Uh, number one, my servant David, we're going to find in both that psalm and in this uh, part in Samuel, those are going to be repeated phrases, the identification of David. Uh, steadfast love is another phrase that we're going to find in both chapters of the Bible. Faithfulness. We're going to have talk about the offspring. We're going to talk about a house, and we're going to talk about forever. And now what I think is interesting, what Samara does is he totally bypasses Psalms 89, 22. And that's where this unusual phrase, uh, the sons of wickedness, not the violent men, is um, is used. And the fact that we only have it three times in the Bible, essentially, because I'm counting Chronicles and Samuel as one, but the fact we only have that sons of wickedness three times, you would think that you would see this as another major connecting point not to be neglected. So, mm-hmm. um, but there's, it's, there's no commentary offered on it by Zamora, which, you know, he actually did take the time to um, take, to comment on sense of Lao and which, you know, sense of worthlessness or, sure. and so we can, um, Read Second Samuel as referring strictly to human events, but Psalms 89 moves us into a heavenly realm and into spiritual events, and it places David's enemies squarely in the realm of supernatural enemies that God is fighting on his behalf. So when God's saying, I have overcome your enemies, he's not just saying, hey, look, I kicked the Philistines' butts, I kicked the Philistines' God's butts on your behalf so that his armies would fall. And, um, you know, you got to remember David's first enemy was a supernatural enemy because mm. we go back to Goliath. And so um, it's this whole scenario is reminding us we have to view this from a supernatural perspective. Mm-hmm. If we're not viewing David's reign as supernatural, we're missing the point. Because David should not have been king. By all rights, he never should have been king. Right. Well, you, according to ancient standards. Right. And then, and then um, I don't know if this is where you're going, but then we kind of from there, we see, you know, you're talking about uh, Goliath being a, a supernatural. Mm-hmm. So what we kind of have, it's kind of interesting if we want to look at the whole thing, and this might take a while, so you, we might just go over. Um, I mean, and, and this yeah, is kind of, it's kind of a summary. Uh, from and this is what I'm understanding. You can correct me. <laughs> I will nuance me more as we go along, <laughs> if need be. But so what we have is we have Genesis six and mm-hmm. this these supernatural beings breaking into the earth, mm-hmm. commingling with human women, and then you get creatures like Goliath and the other mm-hmm. Nephilim and Rephaim. So you have David. The anointed one of God. Mm-hmm. And what David's doing, David's the first step in this, and David's basically kicking the enemy out of the physical realm. Exactly. And then that's where we have the demons, where they come in to, mm-hmm. because the disembodied, the dead Rephaim, who, you know, their place is nowhere. They're not supposed to be there. And then you They're have They're not Jesus. spiritual. Yeah. And so so David takes the fight really as far physically as you can mm-hmm. um, and kicks it back into the spiritual world. And then that's when we rely on Jesus to come in and finish it off in the spiritual realm where the, you know, 
taken it back from where it started. So that's it's kind of mind blowing. Whenever you start putting it all together, it makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, it, well, and that's the, that's the thing when you've got the context. And I I know everybody's tired of hearing me say that word context, but get used to it because you've got to look at all of this. The context is not simply the book of Samuel. Right. That's that's the immediate context. But it is placed within this book that begins with Genesis and ends with Revelation. You get a supernatural creation. You get a supernatural end. Everything in between is supernatural. Mm-hmm, and guess mm-hmm. what? We're between. Right. Because, you know, that's the thing. It, we're between. So we've got to be able to look at what God has done in history in a supernatural light. But I also think that means that we've got to look at our own lives and ask, how is it supernatural? Mm-hmm. Because there is a supernatural element to every believer's life. I think there's actually a supernatural element to every person's life because it was created by a supernatural God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when we begin to accept that this is part of reality and a part of the the mechanisms in the way that God works in this world. Now we can open ourselves up to, to see and appreciate. And I'm not talking about going out. Okay. Everybody's going to, you know, walk along the street and do those miracles. That may not happen. I mean, it would be great to see if it did happen. Can you imagine? Can you use one of those for my, for my back right now? Right. (laughs) But at the same time, there, there is the supernatural aspect in that we participate in the things that the king of the universe is doing. Mm-hmm. And we've all been called to do that. So that should make us happy. That should that should bring us joy to know that we get to do something so important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. anyway, this yeah, we'll stop with that right there. And then we're gonna come back. We're gonna talk some more about Psalms. Uh, sorry, uh, second Samuel seven. Then we're going to just jump into Psalms 89, and we're just going to go through verse by verse, and we're going to talk about why that is like crazy, debated, disputed psalm. Mm -hmm. It has always been contentious, and how even we can go back to the Middle Ages and different rabbis and who refused to even read it or hear it read because they believed it was blasphemous. And Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be good. Well, hopefully everybody enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm excited to hear the next part of it. Hopefully you are too. If you want to be part of it, um, hit us up, Raven Creek SC. Uh, RavenCreeksc.com is the website. At Raven Creek SC is the social media. I still don't know how to end the show. <laughs> um, the... Uh, <laughs> But join us there, um, and also on the website, you'll find uh, Luke T. Harrington, Change My Mind, mm-hmm. uh, Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza, Sometimes Emily, Sometimes Me, Sometimes, uh, who else do we have? We have, a, we have lots of people. Uh, uh, Josh Sherman. Yeah. Uh, check him out, uh, Tending Our Nets. He also has been on uh, Commentarians a couple times this year alone, so... Well, we, we want to I, introduce everybody to him well. Well, and, he, and he, they've been having some great conversations over there. Um, so go check that out. And in the meantime, we will see you on the internet, I suppose. So have a good one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.